Oh man, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm just thinking back to the first couple of times we heard that song, first name James, uh, and how pumped we were, and how it's how many, <laughs> how many dozens of times, how many hundreds of times have we heard it at this point? Uh, it's still a goodie. It's still a goodie. We still love you, Grizz. We still are thankful that you lended that song to us, to our very humble podcast here, the Red Bulletin Podcast. Um, welcome to it, by the way. <laughs> I'm your host, Andreas Georges, talking to top performers in the worlds of uh, adventure, culture, and sports, and innovation, and uh, trying to understand the hurdles that they had to overcome, and, and the tips and the tricks that made them better. This week, we've got uh, David Batstone. I'm excited about this guy. He was suggested to me originally by a colleague of ours at Red Bull. And when I looked him up, I saw that he had started Z Shoes, a company that makes uh, wholly biodegradable shoes. Uh, you should be able to plant stuff on them when they're done, is the way he puts it, with uh, materials sourced in the Amazon. And I kind of rolled my eyes a bit because I just thought, man, isn't that like Tom's shoes? Isn't that kind of the same you know, do-gooder story that, that Tom's Shoes had. Um, it's kind of like a make a difference, you know, be the change you want in the world type of message, yada, yada, yada. Um, <laughs> call me a little bit jaded. Apologies for that. But I dug a little bit deeper in him, and I found out that what he's actually doing and what his actual mission is is to upend the way companies do business. He wants uh, social impact and profit, built into every step of the supply chain. In other words, he wants companies to understand that you can do good in the world and also make money at it. Then I find out he was originally a journalist, and then he was a venture capitalist, and then he was an investigative reporter again, authoring a book on human trafficking before returning once more to the nonprofit world. And I thought that somebody with so many career pivots in life uh, would be a really good person to kick off kind of a new direction in our podcast. Maybe it's not a new direction as much as it is a refinement of the messages that we've been getting from all of our guests in the past few months. In short, what I want is I want my conversations with these people to be more deliberate. I want to understand how all of our guests have come to master something and the effort they put into that process. And I wanted the journey for you, our dear, sweet, sweet listener, to be more purposeful, uh, more actionable. That doesn't mean we won't have any more freewheeling conversations that you know result in stories about out-of-body experiences with TV chefs or the potential of magic in picking up the other sex. But it does mean that I'm going to do my very best to understand the moment our guests identify their ambition and the concrete steps they took to achieve that success, pitfalls and all. So let's kick it off with David Batstone, um, third world activist, journalist, VC, investigative author, and corporate revolutionary. I hope you dig it. I'll see you on the other side. So let's let's start with the question of, you know, how many of the things in your life, early in your life, how many of the things did you do were done with intent in terms of like a career path or a job or that sort of yeah. a thing? I'd say if there was one word that captured my whole experience of uh, understanding a pathway I'd walk down and how I fit into that pathway, uh, really is about uh, discovery. Um, I, none of it was transparent to me before it happened to be honest. And, you know, I can look back and see um, a, a narrative. I can see a thread that would took me from 
point A to point C to point Z, but it wasn't um, a clear to me at the time, and it almost was, it, it unfolded. And I was an observer while I was also a participant, if that makes sense. Right. Um, I was, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I write books, and when I write page one and start writing, I, I feel like I'm my first reader. I, like, I'll even say to myself, well, I didn't even know that. That's good. You know, but I'm, sp- I'm speaking to myself. So th- it's the same way on a, on a career path or a, a you know, vocational path where you're trying to figure out the things you want to do and the things that make sense, the things that are important to you. Um, I think probably a lot of people are just, with discovery, uh, there, there has to be a, a sense of confidence about things will work out. And there also has to, uh, we have to manage our fears. Our fears of failure, our fears of what others are going to think of us, parents or uh, other significant people in our life. And to manage fear and to, um, in a sense, be willing to go on an adventure. Because life is too short not to be in an adventure. And I, I guess I just always embrace that. And you were born in Chicago. Uh, the adventure never was going to keep you in Chicago, though? Is that- <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It, it, it's a good insight because born in Chicago, moved to a smaller town, uh, Champaign-Urbana. Right. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, I, I honestly felt like the first 18 years of my life, I was... Uh, Swimming in the wrong water. I'm a saltwater fish, and I'm in fresh water. Right. And you know, I did. But you know, of course, when you're growing up, you just don't have the words to con. To, and I think a lot of young people feel just totally out of their skin. They feel totally lost or uh, out of place. And uh, so I didn't have a language for it. Uh, again, looking back now, I can say, well, no wonder you were in an environment that didn't encourage your creativity. Um, you know, I. Uh, I I flew through school. I had an excellent grades. I don't, I don't think I ever got to be in school uh, my whole life. And so, uh, but I would never even think of like pursuing Stanford or Harvard or you know. I, I just there was just like very, I had very minimal expectations on myself because my environment created very minimal expectations of what could be accomplished or achieved or where you could go. What yeah. did your, was it, was it your folks or was it? Well, my, my folks or? were fantastic people, but they, you know, they certainly, they weren't, um, they weren't thinking that somehow, um, you know, it was, wasn't their horizon either. You know, it, we came out of a very, uh, a religious community that was, uh, very self-enclosed and, you know, we didn't, we didn't really walk in those worlds where, uh, people created opportunities for themselves. I, I like to say, I even say this to my students now. Um, I'm a professor at the University of San Francisco. And first day of class, I'll say, okay, listen, a lot of your students are coming in today, and you're, you think of yourselves uh, as being ticket takers. And, you know, you want to manage the bus, make sure everybody gets to their seat, you take their tickets, but you're not thinking of yourself as a bus driver. And if I was teaching at Stanford today, they're teaching bus drivers. And most of you come here thinking you're going to be taught as a ticket taker. And so I want to change your mind. I'm going to teach you this semester as if you are the bus drivers. That is your driving culture. You're driving the future. You're not just someone who tries to, you know, take part, participate, manage what other people have created. It's interesting. Is that, but is that a new concept or do you think it's hearkening back to something that we've lost? It's a really good question because sometimes I think we, we romanticize the past. Yeah. That, that we lived in an era when things were, we're terrific, and now we. I think it's more universal. And the more I travel around the world, I just find that there, 
not everyone can be an entrepreneur, of course. No, not everyone can be a creator. Um, I, I think we're our own worst enemies in terms of imagining the the, the paintings we can make. Um, right. We're our own worst enemies because we we settle for so little. And I don't know where that comes from. I mean, my, my, my mom, I remember my mom looking at me one time. It was almost like, you know, that Batman movie, Who Are You? You know, who are you, for goodness sake? You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm Batman. Yeah, yeah. But it was like, that's what I felt like was, like, she looked at me and said, who are you? Like, where do you come from? Like, where do these aspirations and these uh, like going outside the box, you know, um, I very easily could have followed a very traditional path. Could have gone to school. I was going to go to law school. Go to mid, you know, mid. Again, there's nothing wrong with normality, but I'm just not normal. Right, right. And I, I think, you know, I, there's a Canadian singer um, named Bruce Coburn, and he's got these lyrics. The only trouble with norm, normal is it only gets worse. And I do feel like somehow that we conform to normality, not because we've chosen it, but because it has chosen us. Wow, I'm gonna just like sit and think about that for a second. <laughs> you literally, you completely caught me off guard. So, so, uh, so another interesting thing though is that you, you know, you started a nonprofit in El Salvador in the 80s. Yes, you that could have been your life, right? No, you exactly. Could have, you could have been a nonprofit guy. Yeah, exactly. And then you switched and became a journalist. Yes, right? which can you can kind of see the relationship there. Maybe right. the things you witness in El Salvador makes sense, you right. know. And then and then you went into venture capital in, in the late yeah. 90s. You yeah. know, did each of those things lend themselves? Did each of those? Would you consider them pivot? Pivots at that point, or oh, were they just? Yeah, I definitely would see them as pivots because yeah. I can see how the experiences that I had in one phase of my life right. made me curious. Uh, also, made me. Um, I felt like I was always learning skills to actually make uh, something happen, and then those skills that you know they they because we live in a world where skills are in fluidity. There's skill, you know, what you think you're learning a skill for today becomes useful for something very different tomorrow. And so I, I suppose I, you know, even being a venture capitalist, I wasn't looking to be an investor. I was looking to really understand this emerging crossroads of business and technology that these little companies like eBay and, and Amazon and Yahoo were, were, were emerging as. And why did that fascinate me? It, to me, it was like a puzzle and to understand them and to figure out their models and, you know, because I had the good fortune to do interview after interview, you start to see patterns where other people see a forest. You get to see these patterns because you're above the forest. And that became a valuable skill set for, right. for, for investors who are trying to figure out what's happening in this world where things change so quickly. This is when you were a journalist in Exactly, the 90s, this is when I'm a right, journalist. So right. there's an example of just diving in and really um, uh, being curious about the world around you. Um, and then... You know, for me, it's we live at an incredible moment, particularly in the United States, where there are no credentials that give you permission to do something. It's almost like if you're crazy enough to do it and you have the imagination to create it, then you go for it. You know, and and you know when I when I create a company, I've created several over the last few years. No one says, "Have you ever started a beverage company before?" Or you, I'm just doing it. Particularly at the stage where I'm just doing it and not asking them for money. Now, if I'm asking them for investing, they go, have you done this? But uh, there's a solution for that, too, is that you go out and you find the best people in a particular area that you want to succeed in, and you recruit and otherwise accompany them. So it's to me, it's 
it's finding your finding the talent, finding the resources, and and deploying your imagination around a world you see just coming into play. And I'm I'm always thinking about what's what's happening next, and that's part of that curious gene, I think. Why why don't you kind of sit back? I mean, why don't you just you know you could have been a journalist all mm. all you know all of your life. You could have been a nonprofit. We mentioned before yeah. you could have been venture capital, which would have been probably of all of them the most profitable for you <laughs> to to stick around in. But um, what is it about complacency that turns you off so much? Yeah, you know, I get I I, I was cursed with this notion that. I should do something about the world to design the world that I think is better for us as people. And I, I say that because, you know, if you look at the world today, there's so many problems. It's so messed up. You just want to turn it off. And I, I don't know where I, uh, as a teenager, got this idea that, you know, your whole life's going to be about trying to fix these things, you know. And so I think if you look at the things I've done, to me, it's like I'm gathering as many tools as I can to bring about the changes I want to see, particularly around people who live in poverty or live in such disadvantage or uh, aren't given a chance in life. So that this the whole sense of fairness, the whole sense of – now, to be a venture capitalist and be concerned about the poor in South America and Asia, it's kind of a weird dichotomy, right? Or, But to me, there was always – it was that, uh, you know, in religious – I'm not really religious today, but I do like this uh, word, uh, a calling or a purpose. Yeah. That it, it's, you know, it's like the sense of no matter what happens, it's driving you. Yeah. And it, it's got, it gives you a center for what, why you do what you do. I think a lot of people just feel like, what am I doing? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? Right. And not even in, in some deep philosophical sense always. It's just like, I feel uh, I'm lost. I don't know where I'm headed. And I guess my purpose gave me a very clear sense of direction. Yeah, but that's a challenge then, isn't it? Because if you don't have spiritual guidance, if you're someone who doesn't believe in God or doesn't have the the construct of religion to guide guide you through that or, or, or provide purpose when you need it, how, how do you – can you manifest purpose for yourself? Yeah. I mean, can well, you, I mean what, are, what, are, yeah, what are your thoughts okay, on how to do yeah, that? Yeah, no, I think it's good. I used to think that um, I was asking what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? Yeah, I was looking outward. And then it hit me one day is that really life is asking me. The things that come into my life, like I wasn't looking to fight human trafficking around the world. Right. But here I a restaurant in the San Francisco Bay Area that I used to go to all the time turns out to be a trafficking ring. Now, to me, again, it's how you read life or how you read your, your, your experience. To me, life is asking me a question. Then, so, so what are you going to do about that? I could walk away because it's not my problem or I could walk away because – you know, I'm not trained as a advocate, or but in a in a weird way, I think everyone um, has has these things happen to them. That in a sense is a is a question, and the way they respond to it, what their activity or response to it is going to open up a whole other set of doors, going to open up a whole other set of uh, a pivot, as you say. And I suppose I, um, I trust that life is guiding me, and I'm not guiding life. Right, and you're also highly cognizant of that, um, which is which is why you're you've been able to do all these different things. Yeah. Right. So. Well, right. So you know, so I'm sitting as a journal. Yeah, you know, I know we're hopping around a bit here, but yeah. that's my life. That's your life. Yeah, exactly. But you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to so, have to do I'm, one yeah. hell of an intro to this podcast, <laughs> exactly. by the way. Just FYI. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I'm sitting as a journalist yeah. um, uh, interviewing two venture capitalists about. Silicon Valley, I wasn't looking for, to be anything other besides just I was just really want to understand this industry. And, you know, I take a break during the interview to go to the restroom. I come back and said, hey, while you're in the restroom, we're talking. You know more about this industry than we do. 
would you join us? I mean, I can't create that. I couldn't just like walk into a venture capital firm and say, hey, I got this idea. How about if I become a venture capitalist? Even though I could, I guess, but it was just that that was a moment life presented me. Now, I work with a lot of, of young people because I'm a professor in both in a kind of master's of MBA program and also in the undergrad, but I, I find that um, a lot of the, a lot of young people I challenge say, so why don't you do this? They say, well, I don't have any background that I go, I know, but the, the opportunity has arisen that you could do it. Yeah, but I have, you know, we have so many excuses. Sure. Rather than, and this is what I say about trusting life. Yeah. When life brings you something like that, at that moment, it'd be so easy for me to say, I have never, I don't have any training in it. Yeah. You know, that's not my background. Yeah. And so I suppose, I guess for me, it's, it's not just being a uh, passive recipient to what comes your way, but rather it's engaging whatever happens to you uh, because I'm not religious enough to think that things happen for a reason all the time, but I do feel questioned by them. Whatever happens to me, I feel like they're asking me a question. So how do you go about gathering the skill sets for these things, yeah. right? How do you, is it, is it you're gathering skill sets, you're, you're just constantly curious all the time and so you're trying to learn as much as possible, which is kind of hard to do if you're being pulled <laughs> yeah. in all these different no, directions. Absolutely. You can't be a master of everything, No, right? that's true. So, no. I mean, is it, how, how, in a very tangible way, how did you, you know, how do you pick up the skill set? Um, I really focus on whatever skills are going to enable me to achieve the next goal. And so I don't try and, you know, have a generic, I'm just going to learn every skill. Right. I'm going to say, okay, what are the things I need to know? And I think this is really, it's set up when I was in El Salvador and, and Central America um, doing human rights and economic development. At that stage, I said, okay, economics is a big part of this here. I need to be able to figure out how to invest money, make that money replicate itself. And, you know, I, I really need to learn how to be an investor. And... Uh, little did I know, you know, seven years down the road, I'd be in Silicon Valley being an investor. It, w- it was really at that moment focusing on the skills I would need. I also, uh, you know, investigation was a big part of what I was doing on human rights work. So learning how to investigate things well and how do you write that up and how do you communicate it and how do you – so, you know, I'm becoming a journalist. Yeah. So it really was just immersing myself in the situation. I often say this to my students. If you're if you're feeling a little bit confused but well, the best default is to jump both feet into your passion. And, you know, whatever it is you think you're, you're really passionate about, jump both feet and learn as many skills as you can to make you successful with that passion because that's going to open up the next door. And the great thing is that you're carrying the momentum of your own passion forward. Uh, just to, I think so many, so many of us pick up a skill just because we think it will make us money or just seems the right thing to do because that's what the career calls right, for. right. But we're bored and otherwise unmotivated. We're not inspired because it's not something we're passionate about. So I yeah, follow, but, that's been my default is follow my passion. Right. But, I mean, what if your passion is all about creative, right, being yeah. creative, and your passion isn't about numbers and finance and oh, all that stuff? Then I, mean, I would jump possible? into the creative. I just, I'll be the happiest if I'm creative in that regard. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, no, I just, I'm really convinced that... We constantly make sacrifices for the practical. We constantly sacrifice our passion for something else. And I don't feel that whatever material rewards come from that or other rewards can compensate for the loss of our heart. And so I really am always encouraging people that if you throw yourself, it doesn't mean, oh, I'm just going to you know, hang out and goof around with my passion. Your passion requires a lot of discipline. Your passion requires a lot. But it's really, uh, for me, it's that 
for someone who doesn't have a God out there telling them what to do, it's their own internal uh, sense of being and, and really embracing their own being and their passion. That's where happiness lies. So you, you wrote, um, you mentioned earlier that you, uh, there was a sting operation at your favorite restaurant in the Bay Area. Yeah. It kind of led you down this path that eventually led you to leave the VC industry, right, and, um, and go investigate the problem of human trafficking, right. the horror of human trafficking really around the world which resulted in a book, um, Not For Sale. What happened after Not For Sale? You created a nonprofit again. It was almost like kind of a return to yeah. to form for you. Was that, was that just, did that just kind of logically happen? Or did you think, hey, you know what? I'm just going to write this book and then I'm going to go right back into the tech industry because that's where it's really Yeah, it's happening. really the latter. It was, this is one of those things where, you know, just take one step towards something that your curiosity or your passion leads you to. And, and the scary thing is that after one step, sometimes there's a second step or a third step or fourth step. But heroes are never just uh, descend from the skies or from out of nowhere. Heroes are always tentative step. People who have been willing to take tentative step after tentative step. And then they look back and say, wow, how did I get here? And, and certainly it was the case for me. I just went... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a year leave of absence, go around the world, figure it out, write a book because I could, uh, you know, I know how to write. And that was all I was going to do. I was going to return to the tech industry. It got so under my skin. And I also uh, found a, a, a woman in, in northern Thailand who I was really just uh, drawn to her courage, saving 27 kids who were like slumdog millionaire kids, and uh, you know, grabbing them out of karaoke bars where they were being forced to sell their. Uh, bodies to men coming from around the world. So child sex rings and also street beggars, and she rescued them and had no home for them. It was just like living in a field. So that was like a very tangible, okay, I, I was all I was going to do is write a book. Okay, I'm going to help this one woman. I'll build a house with the proceeds from the book. And that was really as far as I went. Um, and then, you know, it snowballed to, okay, those 27 kids she's rescued before I can finish the book. She has 88 kids. Okay, okay, I'll build a village. And then, you know, out of that, then I someone else said, well, you know, there's this woman in Peru you should be helping. And I met her, and oh, man, she's amazing. So it really was a, a, a slow evolution towards an organization. That was one part of it. The other is that I was, I think most of our brains are wired that when we're going to do something good, we think about a charity or a nonprofit or a church mission, or we we think about it in terms of a volunteer, um, soft money where you're asking for donations, and really not well organized because it's a thing of the heart. In fact, some people even resist trying to make what I've described as changing the world into a system into a, something that can scale because they feel like, well, now it's not from the heart. But I think that comes from a place of what well, what am I getting out of it rather than what am I achieving or what, who am I helping? Uh, but after five years of doing a lot of soft heart stuff, um, which I still believe in thoroughly is that you have to rescue the kid drowning at the end of the river. Um, but I think you're also being kind of self obsessed. If you're not looking at how can I stop future kids from falling in? Cause I feel so great when I rescue a kid, but I really want the kids who haven't yet are ready to fall into the river and come on downstream and drown. How do I stop them? So to me, it's it's you know taking your heart to your head. It's the sincerity and compassion together with the strategy and 
and the um, long-term goal of of solving a problem. It seems so logical, right, to think <laughs> that way, right? Yeah. Uh, but but the world nonprofit industry doesn't function that way. No, it right? doesn't. Why is that? It's such a difficult world to work in. I mean, I I find tech companies much easier to in a competitive world than nonprofits because I, I think the problem with nonprofits. And I look at there's so many good people who volunteer. There's so many good people who do things. But I think the structures of nonprofits is that it's not it's not really ever clear what's the goal. Um, and so you end up with a whole set of organizations that are driven by ego and logo. Is what I call it. And so it's a founder who their identity and their ego is wrapped up in this. And so it's hard for them to imagine letting go of that or otherwise kind of creating something bigger than themselves uh, logo because the only thing I have is my the name of my organization you know david.org you know so I, it's real like I've tried to like hey look at there's eight of organizations we're all doing the same thing why don't we all come together and have one bigger organization we can have more you know efficiency and more scale and they look at me like I'm crazy you know it's like yeah. so it never yeah, works yeah, yeah, yeah. well yeah. what would we call it I go it doesn't matter what we call it yeah it's like but that's what it always comes back to because of scare, a perception of a scarcity of resources, I, I think most nonprofits operate out of what I call an economy of limited good. There's only so much good in the world, and if something good happens to you, like you get a big grant or you succeed in something, it's not going to happen to me. Instead of this economy of abundance where good things happen to you, they're going to flow back to me, it's just a very different mentality. So I decided that um, after five years, I was I was creating projects that were in and of themselves, I could tell you 50 stories of kids, individual kids I helped. But there was 450,000 kids in northern Thailand that needed help. And so I said, okay, I'm never going to get to that 450,000 if I use the same uh, charity model that doesn't grow, scale, or um, uh, solve the problem. So about five years of you know operating almost solely out of my heart and not my head, I decided to you know flip it. I often quote Van Morrison, the Irish folk singer here, where he said, if I can only get my heart to do the thinking and my head to do the feeling. And, and bringing those together, um, it's not either or, it's, just, it's both. Uh, so then I said, okay, well, what if I use the same methods I used in the world of venture capital? If I'm going to start a company venture capital, I get the best talent. I don't just look for volunteers. I try and get capital, not donations. That is, I want people to invest um, at significant levels and take a risk. And I, I look for the best technology, not secondhand computers. So it's just a, a flip. And that's when I created the first company, Rebel. And since then, we've created nine more companies. So tell me a bit about Rebel, because we haven't talked about it yet. Yeah, you know, Rebel is a health organic beverage, yeah. um, fastest growing uh, organic health beverage in America. It's in every state now, just going gangbusters. And we source herbs uh, from all over the world. But and the initial, you know, why we started it was to help a group of indigenous people in the Amazon of Peru. Communities that now not for sale as an organization, I'm, we're working in the community. We learned, you know, using my analogy from before, my metaphor of going upstream. There were kids in Lima, Peru, the capital, who were, um, you know, slumdog millionaire kids on the streets. We discovered that many of them from the Amazon. So why the Amazon? So let's go upstream and how do we solve the problem upstream? 
And it was kind of fun creating the company because I brought the 50 most influential people that I knew together and did like a design workshop and right. asked them over 36 hours. So talent, yeah. bringing yeah. talent together. Yeah, 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 of course. And um, it was really remarkable. You know, you'd have founder of Twitter and the founder of, of uh, you know, largest bank in Australia. And I, just, I brought finance, tech, sports stars, uh, uh, musicians. And, you know, really I said for 24 hours, give me 24 hours, help me solve this problem. And whatever you come up with on Monday morning, I'll do it with my team. And it was really, a, you know, stupidest thing I've ever said, rational exuberance, as it were, because they came up with this idea I knew nothing about. A beverage company where we source these herbs. Yeah, but why did you trust them to come up with something that would have made sense? Well, you know, I, was, I think maybe it was just a sense of, yeah, you have to almost come to the place that you you feel that the things you're doing are just never going to go anywhere and you know i think it was einstein said insanity is doing the same things over and over again expecting different results right and you almost have to come to a point and i think personally some people need to come to this point in their own personal journey and i think organizations we just say you know screw it we just need to try something completely new and i think we were at that stage i knew i could i and we'd build probably probably had eight shelters in different countries around the world by that stage. And I knew I could build 10,000 of them, but it would give me no different results. It'd just be the same. You know, I'd be coming on Red Bull uh, podcast and saying how bad the world is and why I need you to help me build a shelter so I can make it a little less bad. And I'd go to the next radio show and tell them how bad the world is. And I just didn't want to do that. I want to tell people how the world is changing and how we're finding solutions, and you can be a part of that. And so I just wanted to completely flip the mindset. You wanted to change the narrative of the whole thing. Totally. Right. Really right. want to change the narrative. And how difficult is it from a man whose own personal narrative is constantly being reinvented, right? And constantly <laughs> yeah. being altered and stuff. I mean, that's, it, well, it seems logical that you would tilt at established narratives. Then. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a good point. And I, I think, uh, you know, the word I come up is you're, you're disrupting your own narrative. And, you know, it's, tar it's hard to do. Uh, because it's not only, you know, what I, what I, I guess the law of unintended consequences is that then I flipped the whole organization of Not For Sale. You know, we were growing as a nonprofit and we had a big staff and, and all of a sudden, like a lot of the people who were with us then said, you know, your job's no longer relevant or, and it's a hard thing to do because lovely people who are very sincere and intentional, but they had the wrong skills and the wrong intent from where we were headed. And that's disruptive, right? You know, right. I talked to. Uh, I remember talking to the people who started PayPal, and they were saying that because they were just like constantly pivoting, you know, they they were like churning out, yeah, left, shuffing right. people off left and right. You know, it was like wow. uh, the the head of HR. That I said, well, how did you do that? Because it's constant. It's tough because in the middle of disruption, how do you keep a story coherent? Uh, the people story and the culture. So that was the biggest challenge, right? So. You know, but okay, Monday morning you wake up, you say, okay, I got to start a beverage company. And this is where the, really the, the crossroads happens. As a nonprofit, I would say, um, gosh, I got to find some social worker that's done a lemonade and wants, you know, it was just like you, you, you use your network, or who do you know? And oh, that person probably does. Oh, she's a great person. And I loved her iced tea one day, you know, but I said, okay, no, if I'm in Silicon Valley, what am I doing? I find the best mixologist of beverages in the world, right? And I did. I went out and found him. His name is Paulo Hawken. His his father is Paul Hawken. Who was a legendary green uh, entrepreneur, and Paulo had uh, you know done some incredible work for Zico 
um, uh, the coconut water company. Uh, so I said, okay, met Paulo. Now I got to convince him to come and take on this idea. Now, what do you do if you're in the nonprofit world? He said, look, I appeal to his moral sense, his, you know, which I did. But then I don't say, yeah, but you know what? We're a nonprofit. We can't pay very much. You know, you're going to have to work for about half of what anybody else would give you for what your skill set is. I don't do that anymore. I say, look, I want to pay you as well as any other startup, right? If Unilever is doing something, I want to match it. Uh, and I want to give you equity like any other startup. So I treated it like a startup. Right. 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 So I recruited him. He said, okay, I'm in. And I go, okay, now I got to go find the money, yeah. you know, the capital to pay for this bold promise I made. Right. Him. Right. But then it's a matter of saying, okay, I got the best mixologist in the world. And that's what you do in Silicon Valley. Because yeah. we believe in talent, we invest in talent. And so I go to investors, they go, wow, you got him? I go, yeah. Oh, I'd love to be a part of that. So, you know, talent links to capital, links into cutting edge methodologies or technologies. And that is how I built that company so that it's always been, uh, you know, a first rate company in terms of the people who run it, the product it makes. So we started with an intent to what I, I came up with this term called impact sourcing. The way you source your ingredients, you're impacting a community. So that, you know, the shirt I'm wearing today, how were the people impacted in the way the shirt was made and the materials were sourced? I, I cringe to think, right? Because I don't know. It's not transparent. And I know that the apparel industry goes for the cheapest, not the quality of life or the dignity yeah, of the people. Yeah. So impact sourcing, how do you source? So we start sourcing uh, for the first drink out of the Amazon. Uh, you fast forward now, we're uh, sourcing in 39 countries, mostly co-ops of farmers who we can directly link our impact. And that's so gratifying that as the company grows, as the product grows, the impact grows. Uh, and so that is a mission enough just in terms of our commitment to make sure that we source to make impact. But then we take 2.5% of the gross revenue, which means for a $4 bottle at 10 cents every time you buy it. It's not if we're profitable or depending on what our profit or net profits are it's that year. It's built in. Yeah, it's built in. Yeah. It's written into the code. So there's going to be money every time you buy a bottle of Rebel will go back to not for sale to help these communities. So to me, that was like a fantastic template. And now we've repeated it several times over in other types of companies. So, and including Z Shoes, which is so Z Shoes would be the so latest then. example. Rebel at first, Z Shoes the latest example where, you know, we source all of the organic materials for the cotton and the rubber. I, I just came back from the Amazon and, you know, watch. I spent a few days with the rubber tappers. Uh, most shoes are made by just chopping a tree down and taking all the rubber out of the tree. It's just like it's a form of, of harvesting rubber. These farmers, like they, it's like maple syrup, and they make a very specific cut in the tree, and only on one part of the tree, because they know that then their children will come around the next generation, and they'll cut the other side of the tree, wow. just like their grandfather had cut the back side of the tree. And you just see this kind of cycle of life. I wanted to make a shoe that embraced that cycle of life, right? So, you know, the, the, the shoes I have on today, uh, the, I know the story of the people who are making them, such dignity to the environment they're made in and to the people. Um, and they're so vegan, I could eat them, you know. So it's just really a, this beautiful experience of creating a product that you're so proud of. Yeah. So if I'm proud of it and I tell that story well and I communicate how unique they are, then I think it'll be successful. Right. There's a you, You've gotten to this point by by indulging your curiosity, by investigating down to the bottom of that curiosity exactly. and, and everything. And 
what is something today that you know you've only recently gotten better at? You know, is it yeah. you know what what is something for you that is still you know that was um, that you wish you had a little bit earlier in your career? Oh yeah, you know, I I think it's the um, I think all of us wish we had all the skills when we were younger that we have now and the knowledge we have, but it, it's deeper than that. I was so lucky as a journalist to um, have an interview with one of the early beat writers, Allen Ginsberg. Uh, you know, a lot of people heard Jack Kerouac and, and uh, you know, Neil Cassidy on yes, the road. I mean, he's an absolute legend, Allen yeah, Ginsberg. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. kind of the ringleader, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, he was, and Howell was like one of his legendary absolutely. books, right? So yeah. Allen Ginsberg, I was writing for Wired magazine then, and... You know, it just hit, it struck me that Twitter was just emerging as this 140-character um, uh, form. And I thought, gee, you know, the Beats, in a way, uh, the Beat Poets, they were talking about expressing significant things in short form and without punctuation. And it would be really fun to talk to a Beat writer about this emerging form of, of communication, right? So, you know, Alan was 70, early 70s came into San Francisco to do a book reading. I just walked up to him, told him my idea. He goes, oh, I love that. I said, could I you know, hang out with you in an interview? He said, sure, come to my hotel tomorrow. Now, what I didn't know is that he was on his deathbed. He had a heart disease. And when I got to his hotel the next day, he was like, he called me up to his room, and he was like coughing, laying down. And, you know, I really had the sense this guy is very fragile, but it was really interesting. So his health wasn't well. He's, a, he's already an icon. He, you know... So I started doing my interview, and, and I'd ask a question. He'd go, why do you ask that? i go, well, I was in Nicaragua. and this, why, why were you there? And the interview was back and forth like that the whole time. I thought, gee, this guy's so curious. And in a very heartfelt, sincere way, and it inspired me to think, you know what? I want to be that guy always. I want to be the guy that no matter what you think you know or what you think you've achieved, that you're always curious about the other person because you know you have so much to learn. And I think that inspired me is that I meet so many people, particularly at my age, who almost feel like they're on the downward spiral of, okay, I've lived the fun days. Or no, you know, I still think my best days are ahead of me. Now, can everyone listening to this feel that way, that the best days are ahead of them, not behind them, and that everything they've done up to this point gives them an incredible set of uh, you know, tools to enjoy the next stage? And I guess that's where it comes from. And that's where, I guess the one thing I hear from people go, I love your energy. I go, well, what do you mean? Well, you're just like so positive. I said, well, I am. I'm, I'm very upbeat about where um, I get to spend my week. You know, I'm, I'm really excited about what's going to happen tomorrow. And I'm not sure everything that's going to happen. Now, how do you bring, if you bring that attitude, good things are going to happen. You're going to attract people who want to be connected to that energy. Yeah, but that, what, that, that also requires, <laughs> by the way, which is amazing, but uh, it also requires an ability to to shrug off the bad shit or, no, not, to, or it, not to get mired in, in oh, you know, 100%. The, the, the mundane grind of, of life and trying to support, you know, of career and trying to nurture that career and, and build that narrative, et cetera. You know, the, the things we were talking about earlier. Yeah, That's a great insight. It really is. It, but to me, it's like, you know, the, in, in Ghana, they say that we don't mind yeah. stumbling because it makes us move forward more quickly. Right, right. And I think you have to look at your, the, the things that don't work out. Now, it's not like, a, you know, as they're happening, you're saying, Oh, that's awesome. I failed so spectacularly. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> but it's almost as if you just take it part and parcel with the, the um uh the experience you know so i was just I, uh, last week i was at the stock exchange in korea 
And, and it's really fascinating to me how now even financial centers are getting interested in this hybrid business model of making money while you're doing good, um, creating a, a fan loyalty because of the fact that people believe in what you do. And uh, But someone said, okay, you've talked about all these companies like Rebel, Z Shoes, and Square Organics that are doing well. What about your failures? And I said, okay, in the last five years, ten companies, two are failures, and eight have done, you know. And he goes, that's not possible. I go, what? You can't get eight out of ten. I said, well, we have, right? It's like, but when I talked about the two that didn't work and where we failed, I really feel, without any kind of like trying to rewrite history, that that was such a valuable part of our whole experience is we learn when you learn what you're doing wrong and what's not going to work, it really helps you do other things better. And also, it's kind of like this sense of, of it keeps you uh, aggressively humble. You're proactively moving forward, but you got the sense of humble that, you know, I may not, I may not be right. If yeah. everything works all the time, yeah. then, of course, you kind of fall into this sense of false confidence that, you know, your shit doesn't stink, you know? Yeah. And it does. It does. And, <laughs> and so how can you okay, – that, and that's what I call aggressive humility. Right, right. How can you say, you know, it does stink. Yeah. And you know what? I am going to trip. And I know I'm not going to get it all right. Yeah. But I'm going to move forward with the same confidence and passion that I would as if I know I wouldn't fail. I know I, won't, I don't stink. You know what I'm saying? It's like how do you hold those two things together? And none of us want to be around people who don't realize their humility, nor do we want to be around people who wallow in their negativity. And so I do believe an important part of life is holding them together. I, I have this metaphor about our lives that we're all writing a novel. And maybe this is why um, uh, human trafficking is such a big issue for me, is that I feel like someone's taken the pen out of someone's hand to write their own story or taken the keyboard away. But we all, you know, freedom is about writing your own narrative, your own story, your own destiny. But there's a lie there, is that we don't get to start from page one that we really are thrown into our story around chapter 13, chapter 14. And those first 12 to 13 chapters have already been written for us. I, I might not like those chapters. I don't like, I don't like where I was born. I don't like my parents. I don't like things that happened to me during those first 12 to 14 chapters. Uh, but if I don't start writing at chapter 15 with my own hand, I don't somehow integrate, acknowledge, accept those first 14 chapters, my story is always going to be messed up. And I, I meet so many people who can't write, make sense of their story because they can't accept the first 14 chapters. And that's one of the great spiritual challenges of our life is to accept that, embrace it, even when it's not that pretty, but then go on and write a better story. And for me, that's what I'm trying to do all the time. Even when I fail, it's my, I got to keep it in the book. I'm yeah. not going to sanitize it, wash it away. It's part of my story. And I've got to be able to make sense of it. Dave, thanks a lot, man. That was awesome. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. Uh, that podcast was on the road, by the way. Did you did you hear that? Uh, there was a school right next door to the conference room we were recording in in San Francisco. And the assistant of David Batstone said that kids were going to be let out at four so the whole entire time we were talking i was uh keeping my eye on the clock um i hope you enjoyed that i did i asked him at the end of the podcast he's a professor i asked him how often is students just give him a standing ovation at the end of class because he's he's so very inspirational um thanks 
thanks for that conversation, David Batstone. Uh, thank you to First Name James, uh, first name in podcasting, our engineer, our producers, T. Rizza, associate producers, Unique Monique, Ryan the Turbo Thurban, uh, work in the social video game, Nicole, don't call me Steve Buscemi. And I've been your host, Andreas Georges, and we'll see you next time.